0: Max Lucado, some of you know who he is, he's written a lot of books, and and I like the way that he writes, he's an author, pastor, he's on the radio, and I like the way that he writes, he articulates, well, in one of his books, he writes about the weak views that people have of Jesus, so I want to just read from his book um, some of these weak views, I think it provides a a good beginning point for where we're going to go this morning, and so this is what he writes, he says, for some Jesus is a good luck charm, the rabbit's foot redeemer, pocket-sized, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put his picture on your wall or you can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You can frame him, dangle him from your rear view mirror or glue him to your dashboard. His specialty, getting you out of a jam. Need a parking place? Rub the Redeemer. Need help on a quiz? Put on the rabbit's foot. No need to have a relationship with him. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four-leaf clover. For many... He's the Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New jobs, pink Cadillacs, new and improved spouses. Your wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently re enters the lamp when you don't want him around. And for others, Jesus is the Monty Hall redeemer. All right, Jesus, let's make a deal. For 52 Sundays a year, I'll put on a costume coat and a tie, hat, and hose, and I'll endure any sermon you throw at me. In exchange, you give me the grace behind pearly gate number three. And he says this, the rabbit's foot redeemer, the Aladdin lamp redeemer, the Monty Hall redeemer, few demands, no challenges, no need for sacrifice, no need for commitment, sightless and heartless redeemers, redeemers without power. That's not the redeemer of the New Testament. Let me ask you something. What do you believe about Jesus? W- would you identify with any one of those redeemers? Because I would before I was a Christian. There's no doubt that uh, he was the rabbit's foot Redeemer, that any time I got in a binder or trouble, what I would do is I would go to Jesus and I would ask him, implore him to get me out of this. And I, I think we, we all at some time, maybe before our, our coming to Jesus Christ, looked at Jesus in a very, very unique and different way. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because according to the Bible, it says what you believe about Jesus is absolutely important because what you believe about Jesus is going to dictate the way that you're going to live your life. If you have a high view and understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, you're going to live a life that's absolutely beautiful and different. And maybe if you have a low view of an understanding of who Jesus is, maybe you're not going to have that dynamic kind of relationship. So what you believe and understand about Jesus the Messiah is important. And I'm sure over the course of your life, if you're like me, you've had conversations with people about Jesus. Well, who is this guy? Do we really know who he is? Did he really exist? And so what we find ourselves in the gospel of Mark, we find ourselves walking through the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And what we do is on the way with Jesus, we're kind of on the road with Jesus, we find ourselves at at, at kind of a a crossroads, if you will. We find ourselves at at absolutely the high point of the the gospel. I mean, if you were to know anything about the gospel of Mark, you should remember two things. The first one is this. The theme is 1045, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. You should, you should immediately know that as the theme. The second thing that you should know is this, that we are coming in chapter 8, verse 3, we're coming to the pivot. We're coming to the high point. We're coming to a transition in the life of Jesus where he's going he's to go off on the road with, Jesus, with his disciples and begin to teach them in an intentionally private way about who he is and his understanding about a cause for coming. We're at a crossroads, if you will, a fork in the road. Many of you remember Yogi Berra. Remember all the Yogiisms. He said this about a, a crossroads, a fork on the road. He said, "Yogi Berra, if you see a fork in the road, take it." Okay, okay that's a, that's a good one. That that was a Yogiism. Didn't make sense except for the Yogi Yogi Berra, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. We find ourselves in a crossroads with Jesus, and where He will take His understanding of who He is to the disciples. So let me read our text. Let me just read our text. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, over and over, we're going to be on the way with Jesus. He asked them, who do the people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ." And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Verse 31 says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Let me just pray. Father, your word says, from the psalmist, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your law. And Father, I I pray that as we walk through this text, we would be able to recognize and see Jesus for who he is. What it means for him to be the Messiah. Lord, not just of the of the world, the Christ, the Anointed One, but, the, but the, the Messiah of our lives, Lord, the one that we need to look to, the one that we need to humble ourselves under, the one that we need to, to trust for who He is and what He's done. And so, Father, I pray that you'd simply open our minds and our hearts to the reality of Jesus this morning. Lord, through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, through the music, through this morning, and I ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So when you read this text, when you read this text, there's no doubt there's two questions come up. And the two questions center on the distinctiveness or the uniqueness, if you will, of of who Jesus is. You know, there's a turning point in this act two. And the turning point is this, that Jesus is going to spend a lot of individual time, a lot of private time, because what he needs to do is he needs to correct, he needs to teach the disciples who he is and what he would have for his life, particularly with what's coming ahead. And what he wants to do is ultimately, he wants to prepare them for what's coming ahead because they don't have a clue about what's coming ahead. Oh, they have some ideas of what the Messiah is going to do. They have some ideas of what's going to be uh, given of them, but they have no idea from the life of Jesus what's going to happen. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through this text in, in kind of like three segments, if you will. The first one is this. There's a conversation with Jesus and the disciples. And out of that conversation, there is a confession. Peter makes a confession. A high, incredible confession of Jesus. And then what Jesus does is he offers a, a correction to Peter's understanding and to what Peter thinks about the Messiah. And then we'll offer a conclusion. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. A bunch of C's, and you'll see it unfold as we kind of walk through. But that's what I want to do this morning, recognizing Jesus for who he is. So let's begin. Let's begin with a conversation. Verse 27 and 28. As, as I mentioned last week, we're in Act 2, and Act 2 is going to be from, from the beginning of uh, chapter, chapter 8 all the way to the end of chapter Ten And this is act two where Jesus is going to take the disciples and have some private conversations with them. And we know that in verse 22, they left Bethsaida where there's the healing of the blind man. And now verse 27 says they're, they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. Now, what they've done is they've, they've basically gone north of Capernaum. There's about 25 miles north, if you will, in the area surrounding Caesarea Philippi. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there. Some of you have been to, uh, to Palestine. Some of you have been to Israel. Some of you have traveled that way. My wife and I went there in, in 2013, and we went there. This particular area, Cesarea Philippi, is an absolutely beautifully stunning area. There was a, 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 a spring that pops up out, and it just comes up and it begins to flow, and they've got it channeled in it. It just looks like a mirror, then it drops off, and then it channels off, and, and it just kind of flows out from this spring. And evidently, the spring actually used to be in a cave that was back. Uh, in, in, the, in the background, but what had happened over the years, earthquakes had shifted about where the spring would come out and where the water would come out. And because the water came out of the spring, out of the cave, there was a lot of worship, if you will. This is a place where people gathered to worship Caesarea Philippi in this area. So they had gods to the Syrian gods. They had idols to the Syrian gods and to the Greek gods, and they had all kinds of idol worship going on. There was the Pan God, who they believed that was in the, in the cave, if you will. Pan was kind of this, this half-goat, half-man kind of creature, and they would worship the Pan God there. And on the cliff, they had these niches, if you will, and where you could use, you could come and place your idol, you could place your, your objects of worship there. They even had a, a marble slab given to Caesar Augusta because there was empire, emperor worship at this particular time. And so this is an incredibly important place where people would gather to worship and figure out their gods. As a matter of fact, one guy said this about Caesarea Philippi. He said this, The place is a very sanctuary of waters, and from time immemorial, men have been drawn near to worship. And so Jesus leaves Bethsaida 25 miles to the north. They go up. They're in the area of Caesarea Philippi, and then he begins to have this conversations with his disciples about who he is and his identity. And he offers... Two questions. Question number one, verse 28. Who do the people say that I am? Basically, he's asking, okay, what's the word on the street about Jesus? Maybe you've had that conversation with people. Maybe your neighbor, or maybe the guy sitting next to you at work. You, know, you get on this religious conversation, and they begin, well, you know what, tell me about who this Jesus is. And there's no doubt there's a variety of opinions out there. And so Jesus is quizzing the disciples. You know, what, what's the, the word on the street about who I am and my identity? You've seen me for the last two and a half years. You've had a conversation. What's going on? How do they respond? Well, John the Baptist. Some people believe that you're John the Baptist, which is kind of interesting because John and Jesus, their lives overlapped. I mean, they were just months apart, so their lives kind of overlapped. Why would they believe that he would be John the Baptist reincarnated? I don't, I'm not sure I get that. And Some people said, Elijah. Well, maybe because if if John was believed, John the Baptist was believed to be the forerunner, the forerunner of the Messiah, and they knew that the Messiah was gonna come, well, according to Malachi chapter four, verse five, Elijah would come before the Messiah. So some people are saying John the Baptist, some people are saying Elijah. Other people are saying, you know what, he's just a prophet. He's just one of God's servants. You know, there's been a lot of prophets. There's been a lot of important people over the days, and, and Jesus is really just kind of a, a regular guy, just a regular servant of God. In other words, there's nothing unique, distinctive about the unique person of Jesus and who he is and what he would come to do for us. You know, there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. So what I did was I kind of got on my computer and I, I got my search engine up and I just, uh, what are the opinions on Jesus? What, what are the opinions about the historical Jesus? What do the people on the street think about Jesus? And I found this guy, his name is... Uh, um, a really important guy. Oh, Jeremy Bowen, thank you. Um, and he did a special, and the name of the special was this: "Looking for the Historical Jesus." And I, I wanted to show you what he what he said about looking for the historical Jesus in his conclusion. This is what he says: He says, "The important thing is not who he was or what he wasn't. The important thing is what people believe him to have been." A massive worldwide religion, numbering more than two million people follows his memory. That's pretty remarkable, 2,000 years on. In other words, he's saying this, it doesn't really matter who he was. What matters is simply what people believe him to be. And I don't know about you, but I think Jesus is absolutely pressing the very issue of who he is. That's why he's asking the question, who do the people think that I am? Do you have any questions about who I am and what I have come to do? And because he wants them to know and understand about him specifically, he presses the question with the disciples of verse 29. Who do you think that I am? Listen, I don't know about you, but if there was something distinctive about Jesus, if there's something unique about him, about his life, about his teaching, about his miracles, about all of those prophecies about him, if there's something absolutely unique about him, I'm going to be the first one to say I want to know. I want to know about who he is and what's so different about him. Because Jesus said a lot of things and the Bible records a lot of things about him that's important to our life. Let me just mention one. Acts chapter four, verse 12 says this. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is just one of the many exclusive claims that Jesus made. And I absolutely believe that if Acts chapter 4 verse 12 is correct, then we need to know exactly who Jesus is, what he's come to do and maybe the, the demands that he might have for our life. And so what Peter is doing, and what the disciples are doing, and what Jesus is doing, he's drawing them to the high point of who he is. I has revealed to them over the last two and a half years. And what you can do as Jesus seeks the opinion of all these people, what you can do is go back and look at all the different things that they were confronted with regarding the unique person of Jesus, regarding who he is, regarding all of the incredible, difficult challenging things that he did in the lives of the disciples. Let me just draw your attention to a couple of them that reveal somewhat about his unique identity. Mark chapter 1, verse 17 says this, Come, follow me, Jesus said, And I will make you fishers of men. Who, who is this person that confronts the disciples and said, Leave your jobs. And they do that. They leave their job, they leave their vocation to spend two and a half years traveling with Jesus and listening to him. He, he totally reorients their life who's the kind of guy that does that? Mark chapter one, verse 27. The people were all so amazed and they asked each other, what is this new teaching? He teaches with authority. Jesus was in a synagogue and there's a man with a demon possessed. He was demon possessed there. And he calls out and he casts his demons out and all the people are mesmerized at his teaching with authority because he's teaching in an entirely different way. And what we're gonna see in our text is this that Jesus is going to bring a new type of teaching and authority. But his teaching and authority is going to be about the cross, about going to the cross, and it's going to be entirely new to them and radically different for them. Mark chapter 2, verse 7 says this. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That was said after they're maybe in Peter's house and and the the room is jam-packed with people. And they can't get in and there's this paralyzed man and they lower him through the roof, they cut through the roof and they lower him right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, I, I, I can heal this guy. And so that you know that I have the authority to heal him, I'm also gonna proclaim that I can forgive his sins. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? There's no doubt that Jesus is making a clear, a clear proclamation of who he is and that he's God in the flesh. Mark chapter two, verse 16 when the teachers of the law who were the Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know what's so significant about that? He had just called the hated tax collector Matthew. Matthew, everybody hates you because you extort people. I'm going to call you to be one of my 12. And not only that, I'm going to go and I'm going to associate with you. And Jesus ruins his reputation among the Pharisees and the religious leaders by one By associating with a hated tax collector. He radically reorients their understanding and their thinking of who he is. Jesus hangs out with the wrong people. Mark chapter 4, verse 21, you're familiar with it. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They know exactly what Jesus has done. They've been in this storm And all of a sudden, it becomes absolutely calm. And their reaction is, who is this that calms the sea? Go back to Psalm 89, verse 9. Only God can calm the sea. They are being confronted here with someone absolutely radically different. And Jesus is is going and he's asking, who do the people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Based upon all that you've seen and experienced. And one last verse. One of my favorites, it's about Peter, and Peter's kind of involved in this story. Matthew 14, verse 28. There's another storm, and they were out, and they have been rowing all night, and they can't go anywhere, and Jesus comes walking on the water. And you remember what Peter says? Lord, if it's you, command me to come. Come. Two people on the face of the earth walk on water, and one of them is Peter. And that understanding, this and all of the other teaching that's involved in the Gospels should radically alter our understanding of who Jesus, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a wise man. He is someone uniquely different and that he is God in the flesh coming to us. And what he wants to do is he comes in such a way so that we will realter, we will alter our lives and seek him. And follow him, and pursue him. I, I was on um, one of the the news agencies, kind of looking through the news, and there's a, a name that popped up, and I'm familiar with this gal's name. Some of you, probably not all of you, maybe one or two of you may be familiar with her name. And her name is Kat Von D. She's a tattoo artist, and she got uh, she became familiar and um, popular. Uh, on the show um, L.A. Inc., that uh, was out of L.A., and she has a following, she has a very, very large social media following, uh, basically uh, uh, 9.8 million people follow her on Instagram. And she was living in L.A. with his family, and they were living like really close to the mayor's house with all the bad stuff in the middle of COVID in the midst of all the things going on in L.A., and, and they realized, listen, we got to get out of here. We, we got to get out of here. So Kat Von D., this tattoo artist, tattooed up, she left with her husband, and they went to a little, a little town in Indiana. And they started going to a little Baptist church. A little Baptist church. And she was confronted once again with the reality of Jesus. You see, her parents were missionaries, and she basically walked away from the faith. And she got involved in all kinds of occult stuff. Transcendental meditation. Um, Wiccan, uh, I mean, witchcraft, chants. I mean, she got involved in all of it. And and what happened was through this Baptist church and through her understanding of the unique person of Jesus, she gave her life to Christ. And then she got baptized. And what's interesting about her baptism is is this. She recorded it and then she posted it for her 9.8 million followers to look at. And I, and I watched the baptism. And let me tell you something. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful description of what happens when you're confronted with the reality of Jesus. And Jesus is the Savior, washes away all of your sin. You go into the water. You die like Jesus died. And you come out of the water and you are absolutely forgiven of your sin. And it is a beautiful picture of what Christ wants to do as the Savior of the Word, to cleanse us on the inside. Yes, it really matters what you and I believe about Jesus. Because if we embrace him for who he is and what He is supposed to be in this text, our lives will be radically different. And she, by the way, we're not even gonna to get to the teaching this week. I, I purposely stopped here because the teaching next week begins... uh, where Jesus talks about denying yourself. That's going to be the application of what we're going to find today. And it's a radical, radical challenge for you and I to follow Jesus. This is what she said about her baptism. She said, I don't want these crutches in my life anymore. And that's what really I saw them as. The 41-year-old said, I just want Jesus. And it's a very narrow road. I feel like all these other these breathing techniques, or spell work, or nature worship, all these things, they're just crutches. They're not really my answer. She became convinced of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm going to go on a little bit of a side note here, and I'm just going to say something. Listen, if you've not been baptized, I think it's important to be baptized. Number one, the Bible says that we should be baptized as a point of obedience. And being baptized is a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of the cleansing work that goes on on the inside. And so what does Jesus do? He's, he's on the way with the disciples. He goes to Caesarea Philippi in the backdrop of all of these objects of worship. He, he asked a couple of questions. He asked, who do the people say that I am? Then he asked the disciples, verse 20, who do you say that I am? And then Peter comes up with the right response. He confesses it. Notice what he says in verse 29, His confession. You are, you're, you're, you're the Christ. Now what's interesting is this they already know him to be the Christ. If you go back and look at the Gospel of John, you have James and John are having this conversation, and Andrew uh, comes in in the conversation that they're having with, with Jesus. James and John and Jesus, and Andrew comes in. And Andrew, in John chapter one, John, uh, John and James are having this conversation. Andrew is there. Andrew hears the conversation. He goes back and it says, he went and got Peter and says this, we have found the Messiah. So from the very beginning, they had a veiled understanding of who the Messiah was and what he would do. And there's no doubt in my mind, they had a desire for the Messiah to arrive and radically change their life. I mean, think about it from their perspective. This is huge. These Jewish men... And the Jewish people, what were they? they were waiting for the promises in the Old Testament. You can go back to Genesis chapter 49. Jacob is uh, proclaiming a blessing to his family. And there's the idea that a ruler will come and to whom all of the nations will submit their lives to. All the way back to Genesis, Isaiah, all of the prophets, what do they do? They, they proclaim that the Messiah is going to come. And what is the Messiah going to do? The Messiah is going to come and he's going to reign on a throne. And he's going to vanquish all of their enemies. That one day Rome is going to be destroyed and emperor worship is going to be taken away from. And he's going to usher in the kingdom. And there's going to be land. And there's going to be worship. And all of that's going to be centered around the Jewish people, the king, their Messiah, in the city of Jerusalem. And so there's no doubt that there was hope in their heart. There's no doubt that they were on the right track with Jesus. Thinking the Messiah has come. He's been talking about the kingdom. It's just around the corner. I mean, think about it, Judas. Think about Simon the Zealot. Yeah, it's coming. The revolution is coming. James and John, I'm going to be the right hand. I'm going to be at the left hand. The Messiah is coming. But that's not what happened. Notice what Jesus did. He said, Listen, Peter, you made the confession, but that's not the right thing. I don't want you to tell anybody about it. What? don't tell anyone that you're the Jewish Messiah? Why would he say that? Why would he say, don't go tell people that I am the promised one and the Messiah? And I think this is the answer. And the answer is this. They had a veiled understanding of the Messiah, a political leader, power, dominion, rule, reign. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to usher in all of the kingdom. And that was only part of it because they were missing the most important part. And the most important part is this. This Messiah is going to come and he's going to go and he's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. You don't get glory. You don't get power. You don't get all of this unless I go to the cross. And that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to correct their thinking. He's going to correct their understanding of what it means, what it means for him to be the Messiah here. His messianic mission could only be understood through the cross and Jesus going to the cross. And that's what he's going to do. And that's what he's going to emphasize in act two. This is the first time he will mention the cross. He will mention it in chapter nine. He will close chapter 10 with this idea of the cross and what it means for him to go as the Messiah, to go to the cross. And so what he does in verses 30 to 33, he's gonna correct our understanding. And by the way, I think that's, I think that's an important part because we want a God who loves us. We want a God who cares for us. We want a God who's going to come alongside and help us. But do we want the God who will go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice and a payment for my sin and for your sin? That we have to actually admit that we're sinners and that we need to change the direction of our life? And that's what Jesus is going, or, uh, Jesus is going to do here. He's going to correct our thing and look at Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Listen, don't miss the phrase. He what? He then began to teach them. After all of his time with them, the high point, they've confessed him to what? To be the Messiah, the anointed one. He then began to teach them what? That I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die, and I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of all the world. In other words, he begins to tell them the purpose of his incarnation, the purpose of his coming to the world. Is not just to rule, to reign. His purpose in coming to the world is to die on the cross and expose something that's true of every one of us in this room. He had to go to the cross to expose the issue and the problem of sin and rebellion. Every one of us, every one of us, have broken a relationship with God. We've walked away from Him, and then until that time when we when we look to Him and recognize that we need to repent of our sin, then we need to trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And He covers us and He cleanses us from our sin. And and that's what He chose to do here in verse thirty-one. Notice the text that says He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. And notice what else it says: He must be killed. We call that a divine prerogative. In other words, there's something in the, mar- in the heart and the mind of God that God is doing in the must-die and must-be-killed. God is orchestrating this from eternity past, the fact that Jesus would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And notice how he identifies himself. The Son of Man. That's a favorite term. For Jesus in the gospel of Mark and he uses it over and over and over he's fully God but he's also fully human and that he would come and embrace life in an entirely different way and he would live among us and he would heal us and he would help us and he would identify with us in a very very personal way what's interesting about the label son of man you can actually go back to Daniel chapter 7 in Daniel chapter 7, you have a picture, a description of the Son of Man. And let me just read it. I'm going to put it on the screen. No, notice the, the, the picture of the Son of Man and how Jesus refers himself. It says this. Daniel says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And notice what it says. He was given authority and glory. And sovereign power, all peoples, nations, men of every language, what? They worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There is worship being established. There is a king. There is a kingdom. And this is the Son of Man. And that is what Jesus is one day going to experience, that we are all going to bow the knee and worship and say that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it's going to come through one aspect. And it's going to come through the cross. It's going to come through his death on the cross for your sin and my sin. And that's what the people picked up about Jesus' message. It was necessary for Jesus to die. Acts chapter 2, the disciples, this is like 40 days after Jesus had been crucified, maybe 40 plus days, 50 days. And Peter and John are in the city of Jerusalem. And they're giving testimony now. Remember, they walked away. They denied Jesus. Now, And, they're, and now they're giving testimony to Jesus' death on the cross. And so notice what they say. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says this. Peter says, This man was handed over to you, speaking of Jesus, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's plan from eternity past is that Jesus go to the cross and even offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. So our understanding of Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the all powerful one needs to know and understand that it comes at a great cost that he died on the cross for my sin and for your sin. Colossians chapter two, verse 15 says this about the cross, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, the powers and the authorities triumphing over them by the cross. Sin and sickness and Satan and death are all conquered where? At the cross. And that's what Jesus did. I must go to the cross. I must suffer. I must die. And I'm not sure they got the last part of that. I'm not sure they got the idea that in, in three days I will rise from the dead. I don't think they got it. What was the cross dealing with? The problem of sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's, that, that's the cross. That's why Jesus, that's why the Messiah is going to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin that we might have this wonderful cleansing in this new life. And their understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the anointed and the Messiah is radically being corrected. And it's going to include the cross I came across this illustration, and I think it's appropriate for here. Um, A Christian minister, John Dixon, once spoke on the theme of the wounds of God on a University of Kansas campus in Sydney, Australia. And during the question time, a Muslim man rose to explain how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe would be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat and sleep and go to the toilet, let alone go to the cross and die. Dixon said his remarks were intelligent, clear, and civil. The man went on to argue that it was illogical that God, the cause of all causes, would have pain inflicted on him by any lesser beings. That is a belief of Islam and Muslims. Dixon thought for a moment, but he couldn't come up with a knockdown argument or a witty comeback, so he finally simply thanked the man for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear. What Dixon then said was, what the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious, and that's this. God has wounds. God has wounds. God went to the cross for you and I. And that's what Jesus is doing with the disciples here. He is absolutely correcting their understanding of who he is. Do you think they got it? No, Peter didn't get it. Peter didn't want that. Look at what happens in verse 32. Jesus said he, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He says, what? He said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God but the things of men. In other words, God has a specific plan for the person of Jesus. And, and Peter and the disciples, they can't get it. Just like the Muslim man, they, they, they can't get it. Wait a minute, that God would actually come into this world and offer himself as a sacrifice? That they, they can't wrap their head around it. And a lot of people are like this. They can't wrap their head on the idea that God would come and offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. That's the beauty of the Messiah going and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. What was Jesus revealing and correcting to the disciples? 1 John 3, verse 5 says this. It says, but you know that he appeared. That means he was manifest, that he was revealed, that he was made known. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. That, that's why Jesus came, to take away our sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says, But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, what to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why did Jesus come to deal with the sin issue? And I believe that's what he was doing. He was correcting the understanding of the Jewish people about their Messiah who would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. And they didn't get it. And they still won't get it till the end. Until they see Jesus risen from the dead. I'm going to conclude here. I'm going to give you an illustration. And then real quickly, just three points of application. Some of you um, are familiar with a a singer by the name of Bono. He, He sings for U2 he was asked a question one time about the divinity of Jesus. Now, this is a rock singer, right? Bono, YouTube rock singer? And, and he had a, a response that absolutely deals with our text here. And this is what he said. Is Jesus divine? Is it far-fetched? No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet. Obviously a very interesting guy a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no. I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I am God incarnate. And the people say, no, no, please, be be, be just a prophet. A prophet we can take but don't mention the M, Messiah word. And he goes on and he says, no, 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 you're expecting me to come back with an army and to set you free from those creeps, but actually I'm the Messiah so that you're left with either Christ who as who he said he was, the Messiah, or you have a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man, Jesus, was strapping himself to a bomb And had the king of the Jews on his head. And they were putting him on the cross and saying, Jesus saying, okay, martyrdom, here we go, bring on the cross. Bring on the pain. And he concludes with this, the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase for me, that's far-fetched. Think about Jesus' confession as the Messiah. Mark chapter 14, he's been arrested. He goes before the high priest and they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? And he says, yes, he answered in the affirmative. And do you remember what they did to him? They mocked him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they spit in his face. Prophesy, prophesy, if you're the Messiah. That's the Messiah that they are being confronted with. And they had no clue of what he would go through in order for you and I to experience the redemption that we have in the unique person of Jesus. They weren't ready for that kind of Messiah yet. And they watch him go to the cross and they all abandon him except for John, who's further away. Jesus was correcting their understanding of what it meant for him to be the Messiah. Three points of application and, and, and we're done. Number one, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? And is he radically changing your life and your thoughts and your actions and who you are and what you've done? But listen, there's no middle ground. Do you have him kind of up here where you just rub him and you need him whatever you like, like I used to do? Or or, 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 or you have embraced him for who he is as the Messiah? Are you on the way with Jesus? Are you continuing to pursue No matter where you would find yourself, on, on the way with Jesus. I look at God's word and God's word says this and I'm, I'm like, you know what? I need to respond that way. I need to love Jesus in this way. I need to respond to Jesus in this way because he went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. In Acts 16, verse 17, the idea of the way it says is, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Remember, she's this, this wild girl who's basically demon-possessed, and she's warning people about how people are saved, and, and that's exactly what was happening. They're coming and showing the people how to live and how to walk the way of Jesus and how to be saved. One last thing, it's just a point of application, is this. This is kind of a picture of a gospel presentation, right? If I can use that. Conversations that you have with G- people about Jesus. Confession, your confession. Well, I believe him to be the Messiah. I believe him to be who he is he says he is and gently correcting them with the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done, how he's come for us. What do you believe about Jesus? And I'll leave you with that because when we come back next week, Jesus is going to have some specific teaching as to the application of what it means for him to be the Messiah. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you change lives. Father, I thank you for the plain and clear teaching from Scripture about who you are and what you've done. And Father, it's very clear, plainly from the Bible, that you came to offer yourself as a sacrifice for sin. And Father, that, that we just simply by putting our faith and our trust in you, by, by by simply calling out to you, Jesus, have mercy on me, that you will save us, that you will forgive us of our sin, that you will take us from the kingdom of darkness and plant us in the kingdom of your son, the kingdom of light. And Father, if someone has not done that this morning, I pray that you would work on their hearts and minds. And Father, if somebody needs to make a decision this morning about who Jesus is and the implications of what it means to follow you and obedient to you. God, I pray that you would do that. You would work in all of our hearts and minds. Father, thank you that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Amen.